Chapter 4 of Beric the Briton. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gary Oldman. Chapter 4 An Infuriated People. A fresh misfortune has occurred, was the greeting with which Beric's mother met him on his return home. Prasukadas is dead, and this is not the worst. He has left half his estates to the Roman Empire. To the Roman Emperor, Beric reported. Is it possible, mother? It is true, Beric. You know he has always tried to curry favor with the Romans and has kept the Iceni from joining when other tribes rose against Rome. He has thought of nothing but amassing wealth, and in all Britain there is no man who could compare with him in riches. Doubtless he felt that the Romans only bided their time to seize what he had gathered, and so in order that Boadicea and his daughters should enjoy in peace a portion of his stores, he has left half to Nero. The man was a fool as well as a traitor. The peasant who throws a child out of the door to the wolves knows that it does but whet their appetite for blood, and so it will be in this case. I hear Brasugius died a week since. Though the news has come but slowly, and already a horde of Roman officials have arrived in Norfolk, and are proceeding to make inventories of the king's possessions, and to bear themselves as insolently as if they were masters of all. Trouble must come, and that soon. Brodicia is of different stuff to her husband. She will not bear the insolence of the Romans. It would have been well for the Iceni had Prasugius died twenty years ago, and she had ruled our country. The gods have clearly willed, mother, that we should rise as one people against the Romans. It may be that it was for this that they did not defend their shrines from the impious hands of the invaders. Nought else stirred the Britons to lay aside their jealousies and act as one people. Now, from end to end of the island, all are burning for vengeance. Just at this moment comes the death of the Roman's friend Persugius, and the passing of the rule of the Iceni into the hands of Brodicia. With the Romans in her capital, the occasion will assuredly not long be wanting, and then there will be such a rising as the Romans have never yet seen. And then, their purpose affected, the gods may well fight on our side. I would that there had been five more years in which to prepare for the struggle. But if it must come, it must. The Cadius Decinius is just the man to bring it on. Haughty, arrogant, and greedy, he knows nothing of us and has never faced the Britons in arms. Had Suetonius been here, he would not have acted thus with regard to the affairs of Brastugius. Had Caius Moro not been absent, his voice might have been raised in warning to the tyrant. But everything seems to conspire together, mother, to bring on the crisis. The sooner the better, Potter exclaimed vehemently. It is true that in time you might teach the whole Iceni to fight in Roman methods, but what is good for the Romans may not be good for us. Moreover, every year that passes strengthens their hold on the land. Their forts spring up everywhere. Their cities grow apace. 
Every month numbers flock over here. Another five years, my son, and their hold might be too strong to shake off. That is so, mother. Thinking of ourselves, I thought not of them. It may be that if it were better to fight now than to wait, well, whenever the signal is given and from wheresoever it comes, we are ready. Since the news of the capture of Mona had arrived, the tribesmen had drilled with increased alacrity and eagerness. Every man saw that the struggle with Rome must ere long take place and was eager to take a leading share in the conflict. It was upon them that the blow had fallen most heavily in the former partial rising, and they knew that the other tribes of the Iceni held that their defense of their camp should not have been overcome by the Romans as it was. Hence, they had something of a private wrong as well as a national one to avenge. Another fortnight was spent in constant work, until one day the news came that Brodicia's daughters had been most grossly insulted by the Roman officers, and that the queen herself had started for Camalodian to demand from Decinius a redress of their wrongs and the punishment of the offenders. The excitement was intense. Every man felt the outrage upon the daughters of their queen as a personal injury, and when Beric took his place before the men of the tribe, who were drawn up in military order, a shout arose, Lead us to Camalodian. Let us take vengeance. Not yet, Beric cried. The queen is gone there. We must wait the issue. Not until she gives the orders must we move. Arising now would endanger her safety. We must wait, my friends, until all are as ready as we are. When the time comes, you will not find me backward in leading you. Three days later came news that seemed at first incredible, but which was speedily confirmed. Decenius had received the queen, had scoffed at her complaints, and when, fired with indignation, she had used threats, he had ordered his soldiers to strip her and scourge her, and the sentence had actually been carried into effect. Then the rage of the tribesmen knew no bounds, and it needed the utmost persuasions of Paula herself to induce them to wait until news came from the north. Fear not, she said, that your vengeance will be balked. Bodicia will not submit to this double indignity, of that you may be sure. Wait until you hear from her. When measures are determined upon in this matter, the Iceni must act as one man. We are all equally outraged in the persons of our queen and her daughters. All have a right to share in avenging her insults. We might spoil all by moving before the others are ready. When we move, it must be as a mighty torrent to overwhelm the invaders. Not Camalodium only, but every Roman town must be laid in ruins. It must be a life and death struggle between us and Rome, we must conquer now or be enslaved forever. It was not long before the messengers arrived from Bordacia, bidding the Sarci prepare for war and summoning Parta and her son to a council of the chiefs of the tribe, to be held under a well-known sacred oak in the heart of the forest near Norwich. Parta's chariot was at once prepared together with a second 
which was to carry Boduoc and a female attendant of Parta, and as soon as the horses were harnessed, they started. Two long days' journey brought them to the place of meeting. The scene was a busy one. Already fully two score of the chiefs had arrived. Parta was received with great marks of respect. The Sarsi were the tribe lying nearest to the Romans, and upon them the brunt of the Roman anger would fall, as it had done before. But her appearance in the answer to the summons showed, it was thought, their willingness to join in the general action of the tribe. Beric was looked at curiously. His four years' residence among the Romans caused him to be regarded with a certain amount of suspicion which had been added to by rumors that he had been impressing upon the tribe the greatness and the power of Rome. Of late there had been reports brought by wandering bards that the Sarsi was being practiced in the same exercises as those of the Roman soldiers, and there were many who thought that Beric, like Cogdinius, a chief of the Regi of Sussex, had joined himself heart and soul to Rome, and was preparing his tribe to fight side by side with the legions. On the other hand, many, knowing that Parta had lost her husband at the hands of the Romans, and hated them with all her heart, held that she would never have divided her power with Beric, or suffered him to take military command of the tribe, had she not been assured of his fidelity to the cause of Britain. Beric was dressed in the full panoply of a chief. He wore a short skirt or kilt reaching to his knees. Above it, a loose vest or shirt girt in by a gold belt, while over his shoulders he wore the British mantle, white in color and worked with gold. Around his neck was the torque, the emblem of chieftainship. On his left arm, he carried a small shield of beaten brass, and from a baldric, covered with a gold plates, hung the straight, pointless British sword that had been carried by his father in battle. Even those most suspicious of him could not deny that he was a stalwart and well-built youth with a full share of pith and muscle, and that his residence among the Romans had not given him any airs of effeminacy. The only subject of criticism was that his hair was shorter than that of his countrymen, for although he had permitted it to grow since he left Camalodian, where he had worn it short in Roman fashion, it had not yet attained its full length. Beric felt a stranger among the others. Since his return home, there had been no great tribal gathering, for Prestutius had for some time been ill and had always discouraged such assemblages both because they were viewed with jealousy by the Romans and because he begrudged the expense of entertaining. Parta, who was personally known to almost all presents, introduced Beric to them. My son is none the less one of the Iceni for his Roman training, she said. He has learned much, but has forgotten nothing. He is young, but you will find him a worthy companion in arms when the day of battle comes. I am glad to hear what you say, Parta. Aska, one of the elder chiefs, said, It would be unfair to impute blame to him for what assuredly was not his fault, but I feared that they might have taught him to despise his countrymen. It is not so, sir, 
beric said firmly happily i fell into good hands caius muro the commander of the twelfth legion in whose charge i was is a just as well as a valiant man and had me instructed as if i had been his own son and i trust that i am none the less a true briton because i accept him and is from the hatred i bear the romans he never said a word to me against my countrymen and indeed often bewailed that we were not treated more wisely and gently and were not taught to regard the romans as friends and teachers rather than oppressors well spoken young chief the other said ingratitude is of all sins the most odious and you do well to speak up boldly for those who were kind to you among all men there are good and evil and we may well believe even among the romans there are some who are just and honourable but i hear that you admire them greatly and that you have been telling to your tribe tales of their greatness in war and of their virtues i have done so beric replied a race could not conquer the world as the romans have done unless they had many virtues but those that i chiefly told of virtue are the virtues that every briton should lay to heart i spoke of their patriotism of the love of country that never failed of the stern determination that enabled them to pass through the gravest dangers without flinching and to show a dauntless face to the foe even when dangers were thickest and the country was menaced with destruction above all how in rome though there might be parties and divisions there were none in the face of a common enemy then all acted as one man there was no rivalry save in great deeds each was ready to give life and all he possessed in defence of his country these were lessons which i thought it well that every briton should learn and take to heart rome has conquered us so far because she has been one while we are rent into tribes having no common union content to sit with our arms folded while our neighbors are crushed not seeing that our turn will come next it was so when they first came in the time of our forefathers it has been so in those latter times tribe after tribe has been subdued while had we been all united the romans would never have obtained a footing on our shore no wonder the gods have turned away their faces from a people so blind and so divided when all was at stake yes i have learned much from the romans i have not learned to love them but i have learned to admire them and to regret that in many respects my own countrymen did not resemble them there was a murmur of surprise among the chiefs who had by this time gathered round while angry exclamations broke from some of the younger men but aska waved his hand beric speaks wisely and truly he said our dissensions have been our room still more perhaps the conduct of those who should have led us but who have made terms with rome in order to secure their own possessions among these prestugius was conspicuous and we ourselves were as much to blame as he was that we suffered it if he knows what is passing here he himself will see how great are the misfortunes that he has brought upon his queen his daughters and the tribe had we joined our whole forces with those of caractius the brigantes too might have risen 
It took all the strength of the Romans to conquer Caractus alone. What could they have done had the Brigantes and we from the north and the whole of the southern tribes then unbroken closed down upon them? It is but yesterday since Prasugius was buried. The grass had not yet begun to shoot upon his funeral mound, and yet his estates have been seized by the Romans, while his wife and daughters have been insulted beyond measure. The young chief of the Sarci had profited by his sojourn among the Romans. The Druids have told me that the priest who has visited the Sarci prophesies great things of him, and for that reason decided that, young as he was, he should share his mother's power and take his place as leader of the tribe in battle, and that he foresaw that, should time be given him to ripen his wisdom and establish his authority, he might some day become a British champion as powerful as Cunobelin, as valiant as Caractacus. These were the words of one of the wisest of the Druids. They have been passed round among the Druids, and even now throughout Britain there are many who never so much as heard of the name of the Sarci, who yet believe that in this young chief of that tribe will some day be found a mighty champion of his country. Prasugius knew this also, for as soon as Beric returned from Camalodian, he begged the Druids to find out whether good or evil was to be looked for from this youth, who had been brought up among the Romans, and their report to him tallied with that which I myself heard from them. It was for that reason that Bodicia sent for him with his mother, although so much younger than any here, and belonging to a tribe that is but a small one among the Iceni, I asked these questions of him, knowing that among some of you there were doubts whether his stay with the Romans had not rendered him less a Briton. He answered as I expected from him, boldly and fearlessly, and as you have heard wisely, and I for one believe in the predictions of the Druids. But here comes the queen. As he spoke, a number of chariots issued from the path through the forest into the circular clearing, in the center of which stood the majestic oak, and at the same moment from the opposite side appeared a procession of white-robed druids, singing a loud chant. As the chariots drew up, the queen and her two daughters alighted from them with a number of chiefs of importance from the branches of the tribe near her capital. Beric had never seen her before and was struck with her aspect. She was a tall and stately woman, large in all proportions, with her yellow hair falling below her waist. She wore no ornaments or insignia of her high rank. Her dress and those of her daughters were careless and disordered, indicative of mourning and grief. But the expression of her face was that of indignation and passion rather than of humiliation. Upon alighting, she acknowledged the greetings of the assembled chiefs with a slight gesture and then remained standing with her eyes fixed upon the advancing druids. When these reached the sacred tree, they encircled it seven times, still continuing their chanting, and then ranged themselves up under its branches with the chief druid standing in front. They had already been consulted privately by the queen and had declared for war, but it was necessary that the decision should be pronounced solemnly beneath the shade of the sacred oak. Why come you here, woman? 
the chief priest asked, addressing the queen. I come as a supplicant to the gods, she said, as an outraged queen, a dishonored woman, and a broken-hearted mother, and in each of these capacities I call upon my country's gods for vengeance. Then in passionate words she poured out the story of the indignities that she and her daughters had suffered, and suddenly, loosening her garments and suffering it to drop to her waist, she turned and showed the marks of the Roman rods across her back, the sight eliciting a shout of fury from the chiefs around her. Let all retire to the woods, the druid said, and see that no eyes profanes our mysteries. When the gods have answered, we will summon you. The queen, followed by all the chiefs, retired at once to the forest, while the druids proceeded to carry out the sacred mysteries. Although all knew well what the decision would be, they waited with suppressed excitement the summons to return and hear the decisions that was to embark them in a desperate struggle with Rome. Some threw themselves down under the trees. Some walked up and down together, discussing in low tones the prospects of a struggle and the question what tribes would join it. The queen and her daughters sat apart, none venturing to approach them. Parter and three other female chiefs sat a short distance away talking together, while two or three of the younger chiefs, their attitude towards Beric entirely altered by the report of the druids' predictions concerning him, gathered round him and asked questions concerning the Romans' method of fighting, their arms and power. An hour after they had retired, a deep sound of a conch rose in the air. The queen and her daughters at once moved forward, followed by the four female chiefs, behind whom came the rest in a body. Issuing from the forest, they advanced to the sacred oak and stood in an attitude of deep respect while the chief druid announced the decision of the gods. The gods have spoken, he said. Too long have the Iceni stood aloof from their countrymen. Therefore have the gods withdrawn their faces from them. Therefore has punishment and woe fallen upon them. Prestugius is dead. His queen and his daughters have suffered the direst indignities. A Roman has seized the wealth heaped up by inglorious cowardice. But the moment has come. The gods have suffered their own altars to be desecrated in order that over the whole length and breadth of the land the cry for vengeance should arise simultaneously. The cup is full. Vengeance is at hand upon the oppressors and tyrants. The land reeks with British blood. Not content with grasping our possessions, our lives, and the honor of our women are held as naught by them. Our altars are cold, our priests slaughtered. The hour of vengeance is at hand. I see the smoke of burning cities ascending in the air. I hear the groans of countless victims to British vengeance. I see broken legions and flying men. To arms, the gods have spoken. Strike for vengeance. Strike for the gods. Strike for your country and outraged queen. Chiefs of the Iceni, to arms. May the curse of the gods fall upon an enemy who draws back in the day of battle. May the gods give strength to your arms and render you invisible in battle. The gods have spoken. 
A mighty shout was raised by his hearers. Swords were brandished and spears shaken, and the cry, To arms, the gods have spoken, was repeated unanimously. As the Druids closed round their chief, who had been seized with strong convulsions as soon as he had uttered the message of the gods, Boadicea turned to the chiefs and raised her arm for silence. I am a queen again. I reign once more over a race of men. No longer do I feel the smart of my stripes, for each shall ere long be washed out in Roman blood. But before action, counsel, and before counsel, food, for you have, many of you, come from afar. I have ordered a feast to be prepared in the forest. She led the way across the opposite side of the glade, where a few hundred yards in the forest, a number of the queen's slaves had prepared a feast of roasted sheep, pig, and ox with bread and jars of drink formed of fermented honey and a sort of beer. As soon as the meal was concluded, the queen called the chiefs round her, and the assembly was joined by the druids. War is declared, she said. The question is, shall we commence at once, or shall we wait? There was a general response. At once, but the chief druid stepped forward and said, My sons, we must not risk the ruin of all by undue haste. This must be a national movement if it is to succeed. For a fortnight we must keep quiet, preparing everything for war, so that we may take the field with every man capable of bearing arms in the tribe. In the meantime, we, with the aids of the bards, will spread the news of the outrages that the Romans have committed upon the queen and her daughters far and wide over the land. Already the tribes are burning with indignation at the insults to our gods and the slaughter of our priests at Mona, and this news will arouse them to madness, for what is done here today may be done elsewhere tomorrow, and all men will see that only in the total destruction of the Romans is there a hope of freedom all will be bidden to prepare for war and when the news comes that the iceni have taken up arms to assemble and march to join us on this day fortnight then let the chief with his following meet at cardum which is but a short march from camelodian then we will rush upon the roman city the scene of the outrage to your queen and its smoke shall tell Britain that she is avenged, and Rome that her day of oppression is over. The decision was received with satisfaction. A fortnight was none too long for making preparations, assembling the tribesmen, and marching to the appointed spot. One thing I claim, Bodacia said, and that is the right to fall upon and destroy instantly the Romans who installed themselves in my capital, who are the authors of the outrages upon my daughters. So long as they live and lord it there, I cannot return. That is right and just, the druid said. Slay all but ten, and hand them over bound to us to be sacrificed on the altars of the gods they have insulted. I will undertake that task, as my tribe lies nearest the capital. One of the chiefs said, I will assemble them tonight and fall upon the Romans at daybreak. See that none escape, the druid said. Kill them and all their slaves and followers. Let not one live to carry the news to Camelodium. I shall be at the meeting place and march at your head, the queen said to the chiefs. 
The victory will be ours, I do not doubt, but if the gods will it otherwise, I swear that I shall not survive defeat. Ye gods, hear my vow. The council was now over, and the queen mingled with the chiefs, saying a few words to each. Beric was presented to her by his mother, and Boadicea was particularly gracious to him. I have heard great things predicted of you, Beric. The gods have marked you out for favor, and their priests tell me that you will be one day a great champion of the Britons. So may it be. I shall watch you on the day of battle, and I am assured that none among the Iceni will bear themselves more worthily. An hour later the meeting broke up, and Potter and Beric returned to Cardum, where they at once began to make preparations for the approaching conflict. Every man in the tribe was summoned to attend and the exercises went on from daybreak till dusk, while the woman cooked and waited upon the men. Councils were held nightly in the hall, and to each of the chiefs was assigned a special duty, the whole tribe being treated as a legion, and every chief and fighting man having his place and duty assigned to him. In Camelodium, Although nothing was known of the preparations that were being made, a feeling of great uneasiness prevailed. The treatment of Boadicea had excited grave disapproval upon the part of the great majority of the inhabitants. Although new arrivals from Gaul or Rome and the officials in the suit of Decenius lauded his actions as an act of excellent policy, these British slaves must be taught to feel the weight of our arm they said and a lesson such as this will be most useful is it for dogs like these to complain because they are whipped they must be taught to know that they live but at our pleasure that this island and all it contains is ours they have no rights save those we choose to give them but the older settlers viewed the matter very differently they knew well enough that it was only after hard fighting that Vespasian had subdued the south and Astorius crushed Caractacus. They knew, too, that the Iceni gave but a nominal submission to Rome and that the Trinobantes, crushed as they were, had been driven to the verge of madness by extortion. Moreover, the legions were far away. Camelodian was well nigh undefended, and lay almost at the mercy of the Britons should they attack. They therefore denounced the treatment of Brodacia as not only brutal, but as impolitic in the extreme. The sudden cessation of news from the officials who had gone to take possession of the estate of Prasugius caused considerable uneasiness among this section of the inhabitants of Camelodium. Messengers were sent off every day to inquire as to what had taken place after the return of Bodicea, but none came back. The feeling of uneasiness was heightened by the attitude of the natives. Reports came in from all parts of the district that they had changed their attitude, that they no longer crouched at the sight of a Roman but bore themselves defiantly, that there were meetings at night in a forest, and that the women sang chants and performed dances which had evidently some hidden meaning. Decenius, conscious perhaps that his actions were strongly disapproved by all the principal inhabitants of the town, and that perhaps Suetonius would also view it in the same light when it was reported to him, 
had left the city a few days after the occurrence and had gone to Verulium. His absence permitted the general feeling of apprehension and discontentment more open expression than it would otherwise have had. Brave as the Romans were, they were deeply superstitious, and a thrill of horror and apprehension ran through the city when it was reported one morning that the statue of victory in the temple had fallen to the ground and had turned round as if it fled towards the sea. This presage of evil created a profound impression. What do you think of it, Cineas? Berenice asked. It is terrible, is it not? Nothing else is spoken of among all the ladies I've seen today, and all agree it forebodes some terrible evil. It may or it may not, the old scribe said cautiously. If the statue has fallen by the action of the gods, the omen is surely a most evil one. But how else could it have fallen, Sinusis? Well, my dear, there are many Britons in the town, and you know they are in a very excited state. Their women, indeed, seem to have gone well-nigh mad with their midnight singing and wailing. It is possible, mind, I do not for a minute say that it is so, for were the suggestions to occur to the citizens, it would lead to fresh oppressions and cruelties against the Britons. But it is just possible that some of them may have entered the temple at night and overthrown Victory's image as an act of defiance. You know how the women nightly shriek out their prophecies of the destruction of this town. But could they destroy it, Sinex? Surely they would never dare to attack a great Roman city like this. I don't know whether they dare or not, Berenice, but assuredly Decinius is doing all in his power to excite them to such a pitch of despair that they might dare do anything, and if they dare, I see nothing whatever to prevent them from taking the city. The works erected after Claudius first founded the colony are so vast that they will require an army to defend them, while there are but a few hundred soldiers here. What could they do against the horde of barbarians? I would that your father were back, and also the two legions who marched away to join Suetonius. Before they went, they ought to have erected a central fort here, to which all could retire in case of danger, and hold out until Suetonius came back to our assistance. But you see, when they went away, none could have foreseen what has since taken place. No one could have dreamt that Decinius would have wantonly stood up the Iceni to revolt. But you don't think they have revolted? I know nothing of it, Berenice, but I can put two and two together. We have heard nothing for a week from the officials who went to seize the possessions of Prasugius. How is it that none of our messages have returned? It seems to be almost certain that these men have paid for their conduct to the daughters of Brosia with their lives. But Beric is with the Iceni. Surely we should hear from him if danger threatened. He is with them, Cineas said, but he is a chief, and if the tribe are in arms, he is in arms also, and cannot, without risking the forfeit of his life for treachery, send hither a message that would put us on our guide. I believe in the lad. Four years I taught him, and I think I know his nature. He is honest and true. He is one of the Iceni and must go with his countrymen. 
but I am sure he is grateful for the kindness he received here and has a real affection for you. Therefore, I believe that should my worst fears be verified and the Iceni attack Camalodian, he will do his utmost to save you. But they will not kill women and girls, surely, even if they did take the city. I fear that they will show slight mercy to any. Baroness, why should they? We have shown no mercy to them. We have slaughtered their priests and priestesses, and at the storm of their towns have put all to death without distinction of age or sex. If we, a civilized people, thus make war, what can you expect from the men upon whom we have inflicted such countless injuries? The fall of the Statue of Victory was succeeded by other occurrences in which the awestruck inhabitants read augury of evil. It was reported that strange noises had been heard in the council houses and theater, while men out in boats brought back the tale that there was the appearance of a sunken town below the water. It was currently believed that the sea had assumed the color of blood and that there were, when the tide went out, marks upon the sand as if dead bodies had been lying there. Even the boldest veterans were dismayed at this accumulation of hostile auguries. A council of the principal citizens was held, and an urgent message was dispatched to Decinius, praying that he would take instant measures for the protection of the city. In reply to this, he dispatched 200 soldiers from Verulium, and these, with the small body of troops already in the city, took possession of the temple of Claudius, and began to make preparations for putting it into a state of defense. Still, no message had come from Norwich. But night after night, the British women declared that the people of Camelodium would suffer the same fate they had already overwhelmed those who had ventured to insult the daughters of the queen of the Iceni. A strange terror had now seized the inhabitants of the town. The apprehension of danger weighed upon all, and the peril seemed all the more terrible inasmuch as it was so vague. Nothing was known for certain. No message had come from the Iceni since the queen quitted the town, and yet it was felt that among the dark woods stretching north, a host of foes were gathering and might at any moment pour down upon the city. Orders were issued that at the approach of danger, all who could do so were to betake themselves at once to the temple, which was to act as a citadel, yet no really effective measures were taken. There was indeed a vague talk of sending the women and children and valuables away to the legion, commanded by Cerealius, stationed in a fortified camp to the south, but nothing came of it. All waited for something definite, some notification that the Britons had really revolted, and while waiting for this, nothing was done. One evening, a slave brought in a small roll of vellum to Cineus. It had been given him at the door, he said, by a Briton, who had at once left after placing it in his hands. The scribe opened it and read as follows. To Cineus Nepo, greeting. Obtain British garb for yourself and Berenice. 
let her apparel be that of a boy should anything unusual occur by night or day do you and she disguise yourselves quickly and stir not beyond the house it will be best for you to wait in the tablinium lose no time in carrying out this instruction there was no signature nor was any needed so the storm is about to burst cinnius said thoughtfully when he had read it i thought so i was sure that if the britons had a spark of manhood left into them they would avenge the cruel wrongs of their queen i am rejoiced to read beric's words and to see that he has as i felt sure he had a grateful heart he would save us from the fate that he clearly thinks is about to overwhelm this place the omens have not lied then not that i believe in them they are for the most part the offsprings of men's fancy but at any rate they will come true this time i care little for myself but i must do as he bids me for the sake of the girl i doubt though that whether beric can save her these people have terrible wrongs to avenge and at their first outburst will spare none well i must do my best and late it is is i will go out and purchase these garments it is not likely that the danger will come to-night for he would have given us longer notice still he may have had no opportunity and may not have known until the last moment when the attack was to take place he says lose no time cinius at once went to one of the traders who dealt with the natives who came into town and, and procured the garments for himself and berenice the trader who knew him by sight remarked have you been purchasing more slaves no but i have need for dresses for two persons who have done me some service i should have thought the trader said they would have preferred lighter colors these cloths are somber and the natives although their own cloths are for the most part dark prefer when they buy of me brighter colors these will do very well sidious said just at present roman colors and cloths are not likely to be in demand among them no the times are bad the trader said there have been scarce a native in my shop for the last ten days and even among the townspeople there has been little buying or selling cinius returned to the house a slave carrying his purchase behind him on reaching home he took the parcel from him and carried it to his own cubicle and then ordered a slave to beg berenice to come down from her apartment as he desired to speak with her end of chapter four recording by gary Ullman.